From third grade to about seventh grade, I wore glasses and I did have to like stop playing a few sports because the risks of glasses breaking, I can't be rough that much with glasses. It kind of like made me not really happy because I couldn't do things that I loved. It was hard to see him go through that. Um, I wanted him to be happy and to feel that he was able to do everything everybody else was. You put your, your family first, you put your kids before you. I did research myopia more than I had in the past and really understanding that with the way that Matthew's eyes were progressing and how fast they were getting bad, as he got older, there were other things that could happen with his vision. I mean, we have one set of eyes. The long-term risk factors of myopia, high degrees of myopia when he reaches six or more is central vision loss with myopic maculopathy, cataracts at a younger age, glaucoma, which is peripheral vision loss, and retinal detachment, you can lose permanent loss of vision. So when I found out about my sight, I was like, oh my gosh, this needs to be like handed out to every parent out there who has kids and glasses. The reason we chose my sight for Matt is we know that he was progressing and his myopia was uh, you know, already moderate. My sight is the only FDA-approved treatment that helps slow down the progression of myopia and control as best as possible. So when we went back for his year checkup, and his vision hadn't changed, I was ecstatic. I was, I guess, kind of emotional. There's no safe myopia. Once myopia starts, it needs to be treated as soon as possible. Glasses don't really help slow down prescription. At this point, the best tool is my sight. Getting contacts definitely boosted my confidence with just doing what I used to do. And it just helped me get back to my normal self. With the glasses, it, I just saw like a box around my eyes and everything, but the contacts are just like new pair of eyes. Welcome to another episode of I Own a Business, where we focus on helping practice owners grow the practice of their dreams. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Vargo, and I have with me Christine Schneider, who is co-founder of RevCycle Partners, and John Kettner, who oversees all the compliance and IT for the business. So before we jump into the topic, I just want to give you both an opportunity to introduce yourself and, and maybe just briefly explain your role with the company. Absolutely. I'll go ahead and start. My name is Christine Schneider. I am the Vice President of Operations with RevCycle Partners and co-founder. Um, I myself have about 25-ish years of uh, billing experience, um, put together RevCycle Partners and an amazing team um, offering outsourced billing services to the optometry industry. Perfect. And John? Uh, yeah, my name is John Kettner, and I uh, actually do the HIPAA compliance and the IT side of things for RevCycle Partners. I've been with them about 10 years or so. Great. Well, thank you both. It's great to have you here. And what we're going to we're going to cover a few different things here. RevCycle Partners, if you're not familiar, 
Uh, and hopefully that'll come through as we continue our discussion here. But among a few other things, they offer a service for practices looking to outsource their billing. And the more I hear from doctors who tell me they are burned out or they've got too much on their plate, or they'll say, I, I want to grow my practice or I want to add a specialty, but I, I don't have time, the more I, I realize how many doctors are just spinning too many plates. And it begs the question, what should we stop doing? And, and I certainly think billing belongs in that discussion. So we can certainly get into that as we move along here. But something that doesn't come up a lot that even got me thinking was the, the HIPAA ramifications when you do start outsourcing your billing. So, you know, the question of what, what do I need to know about HIPAA when I outsource my insurance billing? So let's start with here, this, what would you say just uh, starting with the most basic rules, what are some of the most basic rules regarding HIPAA compliance for an eye care practice? And then we'll build that out in terms of how that applies to specifically to insurance billing? Uh, well, one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure that your local laws aren't stricter than the federal law. Uh, a perfect example would be California actually passed a privacy law that is stricter than uh, HIPAA. It's called the California Confidenti Confidentiality of Medical Information Act. Um, one of the differences there is that any business that provides a software um, to doctors, uh, software or hardware, I'm sorry, it's, they're considered a healthcare provider. Uh, another example is if there is a violation, instead of just getting a fine from the HHS, the patient who, uh, who had the issue actually could sue the provider as well um, for compensation, attorney fees, and damages. Um, and, you know, that's that's the one thing you want to do with the local laws, make sure, but then you also want to make sure you know what a HIPAA identifier is. Um, those can be combined to create what is known as um, the PHI. Um, when PHI is the protected health information, um, there is a list of 18 to 20 uh, identifiers such as social security number, names, um, date of birth, email addresses, social security numbers, things like that. If you combine them all into one, that gives you your identifier so you can easily identify who a patient is. Uh, the problem is this list is over 20 years old and hasn't been updated. So as we go, as things um, develop, you just need to make sure you use common sense also. John, let me ask this. The role, your role as it applies to the the billing aspect of it is is that something that would be something that the the doctor would be expected to know and take care of or is that something that outsourcing your HIPAA your billing would that be taken care of by a third party for a lot of doctors listening to something like that and thinking that that's like a foreign language to me is that something they should know and understand? Or to my point before, doctors spinning too many plates and outsourcing things like billing, outsourcing things like HIPAA, is that, is that typically something that would be under the um, expertise of a, of a third party? Typically, you actually, uh, each office has to have their own, uh, I'm sorry, each practice has to have their own HIPAA compliance officer. So while I handle our side of it, um, the doctor's office is responsible for their side and their patient protection. 
Got it. Okay. I think so, it's fairly unique too um, for an outsourced service to have, you know, somebody in a position like John is where he is strictly monitoring all of our activity that we're doing on behalf of the practice. He's putting in measures to ensure that we are protecting PHI, whether it's something to do with email or whether it's something downloaded onto our computers. Um, he's going through and also making sure that the equipment and the necessary protocols are established and in place too, so that we are always keeping an eye on the security and um, the importance of HIPAA for you know, our customers who are practices who in turn have their own patients, which are customers as well. In terms of making sure that patient data is kept secure, I think we all know that. Most doctors know that. And mm -hmm. a conversation I had years ago, actually, with a, a HIPAA compliance expert made me realize how complex HIPAA was. So a lot of people are just looking for the easy fix. How do I do HIPAA training for my office? Where can I buy a HIPAA compliance manual? How do I go about making sure that, that things are secure? But I realized after talking with him that it probably does make a lot more sense to look outside of your office and your area of expertise for help in this particular area. But I'm curious from your perspective, maybe coming at it a little bit different than a pure HIPAA compliance company, because we're dealing with a lot of data when it comes to insurance billing and personal information, identifiers and things like that. So what policies would you say should be in place uh, to make sure that patient data is is kept secure? Um, one of the things you want to make sure is that you limit access to the data and who has access to that data. Um, I, I think, Christine, did you have a thought on that also? Yeah, um, you know, to, to your point, Steve, um, you know, I, I think it's really good too for doctors to pose a question to any type of outsourced service that they're going to partner with to understand what they do and, and what their um, policies and procedures are. But some of the things that, you know, we want to make sure that our customers understand is limiting the, the access that we have, right? So um, if we are Monday through Friday, we should only have access to the EMR and the PMS Monday through Friday during business hours. Um, you know, reviewing what levels and roles and things that you're creating for user access as well. Um, for example, like our service coming into a customer's EMR, we don't have to see all of the financials. We don't have to see all of the orders and, you know, other things around um, the, the practice um, details, right? So I think doing reviews and understanding what types of access is needed for outsource, but also reviewing that for in-house as well, because it, it affects both, both levels. So it, John, it sounds like your role is pretty heavily focused in this area of compliance and you're kind of the go-to at RevCycle when it term, comes to these areas. But I don't know if every practice has that. You mentioned every practice should have a HIPAA compliance officer and some practices may may not know that. So if we could go down that road a little bit, you've kind of covered how you handle things at RevCycle and gave a couple examples. But for a uh, for a typical practice in terms of HIPAA training, can you speak to that? What employees should be involved in training? Is that everybody? And and what are some of the best practices around 
HIPAA training? Because this is something that I'll get asked a lot. How do I set up a training program for my staff? And they're trying to do it themselves. But if you could speak to that. Sure. So um, for the HIPAA training, every employee every year has to do um, some sort of HIPAA training. Uh, and then once that's done, you have to keep record that they did it. Uh, and you have to keep that record for approximately six years. And for us, for example, we use a program uh, we use called Know Before. Uh, and just because it's with our size, it's easier to um, set up the, the testing, the programs and training through them. Uh, but you can also go online for the smaller offices and sometimes just find a simple, uh, you know, just download a, this is what your HIPAA training is and here's how you document it. Where do things go wrong with that? When we see people get dinged or fined for HIPAA, what are uh, where where are the areas where practices um, make the mistakes on the uh, compliance aspects? Uh, the big one is thinking HIPAA doesn't apply to them for some reason. Um, I, I think what, what yeah, I think what John means to say by that is um, not understanding the true nature of HIPAA and the secured methods in which you need to handle patient data. Um, you know, in general, we see a lot of offices will email us with patient information. They'll have the patient name, they'll have the data service, they'll have claim information on there, things like that, but they don't send it to us in a secured fashion. Um, so understanding how to actually, um, you know, get information to another source, whether it's to us, whether it's to another provider, you know, making sure that you do have a secured email path to do that. Um, faxing is, a, is another thing too that, you know, we run across as well, where an office may want to send us an EOB and they'll be like, well, what's your fax number? Well, we do have a secured faxing service in place that we can, um, you know, send and receive data, but oftentimes the practice doesn't. You know, so it's it's making sure that um, you know people really are thinking about HIPAA and actually applying it to them and everything that they're doing um, for the patient. Um, I also think too, you know, for myself going into a provider's office, I see a lot of times where staff will be typing in a patient chart and they don't log off or. Um, they leave their access code open for somebody else to be able to continue on, you know, inside of that program. And, you know, it's very important to make sure that anytime you walk away from your computer, even working from home, that you lock it or you sign out or shut down of, you know, what you're, you're doing, especially um, around patient data. Some great examples of things that, that probably typically go wrong where I think if you walked into any practice, you're probably going to find some things that violate HIPAA, even if it's just mild. And I don't know if you work closely enough with doctors from this uh, in this context, but have you experienced areas where doctors were fined or were penalized? And I think what a lot of doctors wonder is how bad is it going to be? I think there's impression, and maybe this is where you were going before, John, was that, you know, there are still a lot of doctors who think that HIPAA is, is for the bigger entities, it's for the hospitals, it's for the bigger healthcare clinics that they're not going to, they're not really going to catch me. So is there, has there been an emphasis with HIPAA compliance on the smaller practices? And and feel free to say this is not our 
our area that we, that we focus a lot on, but what have you seen in terms of the uh, penalties for doctors? Is it a slap on the wrist and some corrective action? Or is it, you know, assuming it's not egregious, overly egregious, uh, do you have any any feedback on that? I actually don't have a whole lot of feedback. Um, I, I generally try and stay away from the getting fined part. Um, you know, I have seen the stories where the big hospitals get fined, uh, and on there's the occasional couple of doctors, and they get hit pretty hard. But other than that, I don't see a whole lot of it. I recall a case not too long ago that we had posted for our team, um, and we use that use those as a, a reminder, an example of you know, be careful, you know, we are representing, you know, the doctors, the patients and what have you. Here's, you know, a situation where a doctor was involved in something or the office was involved in something and, you know, there were fines associated to that. Um, I believe the, you know, it, it can range from a slap on the wrist all the way up to lots of money, right? But um, I don't think we hear a lot, um, you know, about the, the smaller practices um, on occasion, yes. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth noting for the listeners that there typically is a process. So if you do something that you find out after the fact was a HIPAA violation, and I've seen that, I've taken those calls before where we accidentally faxed out or emailed things that we weren't supposed to email, there is a process in place. It's not my area of expertise, so I really couldn't speak to it, but you know, we put people in touch with the, you know, the right groups or organizations that were able to guide them through that. Mm-hmm. On the vi- on the vendor front, I, I think even looking internally at our own HIPAA compliancy, we work with a lot of outside vendors as well. Most practices do. How do we, I, I think maybe some just assume that everything is above board in, in terms of HIPAA, but when when outsourcing key functions of a practice practices operation, how does a practice actually know or ensure that its its vendors are compliant? Well, one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure that you have a BAA signed, which is a business associates agreement. Um, that basically, the short version is, it basically just says uh, you and you, the vendor you're working with agree to protect the patient's um, privacy and do what you need to do to do that. Um, the, you know, then there's other steps that should be done, such as virus protection on computers, because obviously you get uh, malware ransomware, you're going to going to run into trouble there. Um, you want to make sure that the comp- you can make sure the compliance training is up to date. There's nothing wrong with saying when was the last time you did it or has everybody done it. Um, uh, just an example for us before uh, we, when we hire a builder and go through training, we make them do their HIPAA training right away up front um, so that we have that compliance. We have to um, bring it up or anything like that. Um, just some mas- some things like that. And John, bringing this full circle back to insurance billing vendors, which is really where your your focus is. What are some what would you say are some specific compliance issues that would need to be monitored for outsourcing insurance um, to a, a billing vendor? Um, you want to make sure that all their computers are password protected. Um, obviously, you don't want to just let it be wide open, anybody that walks in the door, wherever you are. Uh, You want to find out if they have secure faxing and email. Um, Make sure that they have any policies 
in place for downloads and what happens to those downloads once they're done with them. Um, the other big one that is you want to make sure that there are um, like written documentations, policies regarding things like compliance and procedures. Uh, so, and you're, again, you're more than welcome to always ask the vendor. They should be able to give you that information. I think yeah. one other point, too, is making sure, too, that um, we're using a secured password manager, um, you know, when we're dealing with hundreds of practices and, you know, literally thousands of different portals and, and sites and, and different programs, right? It's, you know, ensuring that we have the right um, programs in place to, you know, keep that protected, keep that safe, keep that stored. So uh, some great tips here for working with vendors, even outside of insurance billing vendors, but I think some great takeaways here for both looking at your own internal processes, but also making sure that steps are in place for the outside third party, outside vendors that you work with and making sure that everything is above board in, in terms of, of HIPAA. So, well, thank you both. I appreciate your time. Where can people find out more about RevCycle Partners? And and maybe I, I've had John doing most of talking here, but Christine, if you don't mind, maybe just give people a little bit of uh, information on what we focused on HIPAA here today, mm -hmm. but what are the core services that RevCycle Partners uh, offers your clients? Certainly. So RevCycle Partners, we can handle your medical and or vision insurance billing. Uh, we have a credentialing service that handles projects, um, but we also have a maintenance offering for um, doctors that are looking to offload that completely. And then we also have an insurance verification and benefit service. And if anybody's interested in getting in touch with us, you can certainly um, check out our website. Um, it's www.revcycle-partners.com. Um, you're welcome to also email me, which is uh, cschneider at revcycle-partners.com. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, John. And we've been a great partner for us. You're a, a partner of IDOC and I've I've had a few different meetings with your company and, and very impressed with your services. So I, I really encourage anyone who's interested to, to reach out and check out that website. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. So if you would like more information about IDOC and how we work with ODs to help them grow their practice, you can find out more at our website, idoc.net. That's I-D-O-C.net. So thanks again to my guests here today. And thanks everyone for listening.